are back once again. ATP podcast around the post. I want to say this is episode 166. And your host Jay is here along with Mark Figaroa. How you feeling, man? Good, good. A lot of uh, ATP news. Uh, not a lot of WTA, but it still will be a good show. Okay, nice. Um, where do we start at? With uh, Do we start with a little bit of WTA yes. we got? Yeah, so the WTA news is going to be, obviously, there was a big uh, anticipation and big just uh, speculation because Venus and Serena were hitting on the doubles, not on the doubles court, they were actually hitting on a tennis court. Mm-hmm. And then once that happened, the internet just exploded because they haven't been hitting. And then they're all, oh, Venus and Serena, well, they come back for doubles. Uh, Serena just, uh, you know, she hasn't been playing. Uh, Venus has been playing here and there. But the speculation from the uh, internet is that they might play doubles because Mm. they were seen hitting. What are your thoughts on that? That's just heavy, heavy, heavy speculation. Um, But I will say this. There's no reason it couldn't happen. There really isn't. You know, we do know that Venus is technically active. And we also know that Serena... As much as she had an exit, it wasn't necessarily a hard exit. She left on her terms, which means she can always make appearances and cameos whenever she pleases. So I think it's possible. Yeah, I don't, I don't see why not. I mean, they could uh, they could make a decent doubles team. They've done it before. They've won slams. And uh, with their strokes, they could uh, be a pretty decent doubles team, to tell you the truth. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so now we're going to go on to the ATP. First, we're going to start off with the distribution of the Grand Slam uh, money. Mm. So uh, Vavrinka was saying that Djokovic's player union, the PTPA, is really not doing much to help out the lower players as what they talk about. Mm. So they're saying that, yes, the money is less in the lower rounds, but they have to distribute that money and pay the venues and uh, pay the slams and the federations. Mm-hmm. So after the, all that is paid off, the the increase in money is not as much as what people think. Yeah. And he's saying uh, Djokovic's PTPA is not needed. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, it sounds like what happens in most scenarios, which is, we see this big dollar sign, you know, this big dollar amount, but we don't take into account splits and costs and fees. And they take that crazy absorbent dollar amount that we see and it shrinks to half sometimes. Yes. So not surprising for me, but I think that it may be surprising for a lot of people. Yes, I agree. He he has tried to help out the uh, first round, uh, just uh, winning a match. But yes, I can... I. You definitely see that for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, moving on to the Davis Cup. Uh, obviously, Team Italy went, won. They had a very stacked team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that match, uh, Djokovic versus... Sorry, Djokovic. Uh, Serbia versus Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his uh, post-match interview, uh, they are screaming, the Italians, while he's giving the interview. Mm-hmm. And then he's all, Djokovic... He's all, you You need to learn, talking to the crowd, he's all, you guys need to learn to have respect for players and behave yourselves. Mm. Uh, and shut up. Mm. Uh, do you like that from Djokovic? 
I personally do like it. I don't think that the phrase shut up should be included in that statement, but I agree with it. Um, I do think that Italy is the most angsty and like chaotic crowd maybe next to Australia, but telling them to shut up is it's foolish. You're, not only is it Italy, which you need to know what comes with playing against Italy, but it's Davis Cup, and you know he knows what comes with Davis Cup. Davis Cup is chaos. Davis Cup is a patriotic country versus country affair. What do you think the crowd's going to do? It's going to be more hostile and wild. So a little bit surprised knowing that I listened to the Djokovic press conference prior to this match where he explained in an interview, this is Davis Cup, atmosphere is different, pressures are different, energy is different. He's aware of what was going to come. I think that after losing a match, we talk a little differently than when we win a match, right? Yes. Now, my apologies. This is uh, the British crowd. So oh, when they played the British, things. yeah. So when they played the British, and Andy Murray came to the defense of the crowd, saying they brought it, they mm. brought the energy, they brought everything that they needed to do. And yeah. Djokovic needs to have more respect. Absolutely, I uh, agree with that. Do you agree with that? There's no way. There's no way on earth the British crowd was that bad. There's just no way. I get it. It was the Davis Cup crowd. We know how crazy that gets. But outside of that, there's just absolutely no way. So I'm going to take the side of the crowd, although I didn't actually listen or hear this portion of the media. But I'm going to team up with the crowd on this one. Yes. So now going to the Italy match, uh, Yannick Sinner, he's only the fourth player to beat Djokovic in a span of 12 days or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, he did beat uh, Djokovic in the Davis Cup Mm -hmm. and he played out of his mind Yeah, and then he also beat him in doubles with uh, Senego wow Uh, what are your thoughts on that Yannick Sinner is really making a loud statement about what we need to expect from him next year after him finding a win at the World Tour Finals and then facing three match points and then winning the match against Djokovic in Davis Cup then winning in doubles. It just really shows the grit and self-belief he has. And it just really is a testament to his mindset and how peaceful he is in his mind while playing. Yes. So I think that we should be very scared of what he has to uh, show us next year because he's showing us something we haven't actually seen from Alcaraz or from any of the other guys, which is at Davis Cup, at the World Tour Finals, on maybe, maybe conditions that aren't extremely favorable to make him more comfortable. He's finding ways to not cramp up and lock up, not choke when he has an advantage. He's playing his best tennis when it matters. And so I've, I've got a lot of respect for what he's doing, and I don't think it should be understated. Yes, I agree. Now the players that have done it were Mikael Yuzny, mm-hmm. uh, Nadal, Murray, and now Sinner. Great company. Great company. Now um, let me uh, ask you a question. Uh, yes, Sinner had a great feat doing this, winning mm-hmm. two two matches in a span of 12 days, but it wasn't in three out of five. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Sinner has the tools to beat Djokovic in the three out of five now? So here's the thing for me. I think Sinner does have the tools to do it. It's not going to be in Australia. <laughs> I just, I think that for Sinner... We need to keep in mind that these incredible accomplishments he's had were in front of Italian crowds as well. And I do think that that's impactful 
because that can be a detriment to the morale of Djokovic when he's in front of a completely chaotic crowd in support of him losing. And it can also be very reinforcing for someone who might have been down on themselves when their entire country is behind them while they play. Yes. I would love to see Sinner show us he can do this again in a neutral environment or in a defensive environment where he's not favored. So I would love to see what happens next in that regard, because otherwise I don't see him having the advantage in a best of five. I agree. I agree. Uh, And this is a stat. Uh, This is sort of. Uh, I don't think it's accurate, accurate because Djokovic doesn't play Davis Cup all the time. So this is the first match he's lost in 12 years playing Davis Cup. So that's a pretty impressive stat as Say well. Say that again. This is Djokovic's first Davis Cup loss in 12 years. Oh, wow. But again, does he really, has he really played 12 years in a row? No, definitely not. So yeah. I, that, that stat is a little... It's, it's a little loaded, yeah. Right, but still impressive? Yeah, still impressive, nonetheless. Yeah, so there's that. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> now, let me see here. Where am I going to go? Uh, my apologies. Well, while you're uh, looking for that, I'm going to drop you a little gem of WTA news. Um, there is an exhibition happening in Russia, and... The WTA has decided not to punish any professional players who partake in playing in this Russian exhibition event. Um, Interesting news. Is this progress in a sign of the times that the WTA is not going to punish anyone for participating in this? Oh, yeah, that's that's huge news. And yes, the fact that they're not going to punish anybody that wants to go to Russia Mm -hmm. is fair. That could it, it also could be a sign that. Uh, I don't know if the tensions are going down with Russia and Ukraine per se, but it is it is a sign that things are definitely moving forward for sure. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. So since we're still on the Sinner Djokovic match, yeah. um, there's been tennis analysts on the tennis channel saying that Djokovic is dreaming of Sinner now, especially with him uh, beating him two out of the last 12 days. Kyrgios comes up and says he doesn't have nightmares or dreams of Sinner. He's dreaming about all the money he's made this year. (laughs) Are you with uh, the tennis analysts on Tennis Channel about Djokovic having nightmares about Sinner? Or do you agree with Kyrgios? I, I mean, honestly, I don't agree with either. But if I had to pick one, I'd go with Kyrgios here. Um, I don't think that Djokovic is dreaming about the money, but I also don't think Djokovic is shooken up by Sinner. He had match points. I think he's shooken up by himself looking in the mirror and not closing out the job. He's not, I don't think he lost that match and afterwards went, man, I got outplayed. I think he lost that match and went, man, I dropped the ball. I choked. Um, I think that's the actual reality of the situation. So... I think that he's having dreams of these tantalizing dreams of obliterating Sinner the next time they meet and not choking the next time around and seizing the opportunity to get revenge. So I think nightmares is a horrible word for it because it makes it sound like he's tormented by this loss and it's haunting him. I really don't believe that. Okay, so I have a a statement for you. Goran admitted that when 
Djokovic lost to Sinner in the group stage in mm. Turin that he didn't show up for a day. He disappeared. Mm. Skip practice, didn't show up for a day. He tried calling him. No answer. This is from Goran. Mm. So is that statement backed up? I agree that that loss particularly was more impactful. Uh, what I'm saying is this next loss. So let's keep in mind there's a there's a this is a Oreo cookie sandwich here where there's some uh, beautiful feeling in the middle where he beat Sinner in straight sets, right? Then they played again and he had match points and lost. That's very different from the loss he had when they first played the first time. I think that that first loss he was outstruck and outplayed at the WT or the ATP finals. Then he got vengeance straight sets. Now, in their third meeting in the last two or three weeks, he has match points, three of them to be exact, and still lost. I think that the reaction he should have from that is not one of, this guy has my number, this kid's too good. It's really him saying, I had to figure it out, I got to where I needed to be, and I wasn't able to shut the door. That's a personal issue. I need to work on that. So, in my head, I still, I still stand by the thought that he should be upset with himself, and not concerned with Sinner. Not I, yet. I think that him doing that actually does reinforce the fact that he he is thinking of Sinner a little bit. He respects him for yes, sure. Not as much as what Alcaraz thinks of Djokovic, <laughs> but there is something in the back of the mind to where he's going, man, yeah, this kid is coming up. Now there's two threats. Yeah, I agree with so that. So I, I will give him that. Yeah. So here's a very impressive stat as well. Maybe loaded. We'll see. So, Yannick Sinner versus the top 10 in 2003, 2023, sorry. Mm. He has 13 wins against top 10 opponents in 2023. Djokovic has 16 wins against top five opponents. Sinner has 10. Djokovic has eight. Mm. And against number one, uh, Sinner has three. And Djokovic has two. That last one is nonsense. Yes, because Alcaraz <laughs> won. Yes, so, yeah. yes. But are you impressed by the other two? Look, I am I'm thoroughly impressed by everything Sinner has done in the, the final quarter of this year. Um, I think that the statistics do say something about how well Sinner is playing when it matters the most. But it it's not something I'm going to compare to Novak Djokovic. It's just not. Um, I do think that those statistics require a certain level of showdowns to happen. Um, let's keep in mind, Sinner played more tennis than Djokovic. That's stat one. Uh, stat two is Djokovic is not going to run into as many high seeds as Sinner is because he's a higher seed himself. Um, so he's not going to play the world number one when half the year he is the world number right. one. So that one is a little. Yeah, that's a little nonsense. Yeah, right. um, he's going to run into less top fives because in theory, he shouldn't play more than two top five players in any tournament ever, assuming everyone's playing their best tennis. So I wouldn't draw a comparison between the stats, but I would definitely examine those center stats and go, wow, this kid is doing extremely special things. Yes, I agree 100%. He's definitely stepping up. Yeah. Now, after the uh, loss that Djokovic had against Sinner, Sissipas, who's probably with Badosa somewhere, decided to show up on X. He he became sort of a Nick Kyrgios type person. Mm. He he uh, uh, put a cryptic message on X. <laughs> he said, the shower is where ideas are born. 
problems are solved and the shampoo bottle is defeated. That was Sissy Pass right after Sinner beat Djokovic. First of all, what does that mean? You have any thoughts? I have I have several thoughts. Thought number one is that guy is a Looney Tune man for sure. But my follow up thought is this: I think he drew inspiration from the result of that match. I really do. Um, what does that have to do with him taking a shower? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure about that part. Um, and why did he mention using an entire bottle of shampoo? He has long hair. Um, oh, jeez. Yeah, I, I, there I you don't go. Know. <laughs> I'm not sure. But uh, what I what I can draw from it and safely assume is that he probably watched that match and developed ideas about what's possible. Um, I think that, I mean, and maybe now that we're in the offseason, we'll have time to do these type of things. But there's definitely a deep dive to be had about what it is CeCePa is missing to change the trajectory of his 2024 because they're very small things. Um, he did have an exceptional year. And the reasons he didn't have a center-like year are not as big of reasons as we may think. So I think that maybe he's starting to see that in the mirror as well after seeing a bit of himself in center. So that would be my reaction to it without acknowledging how goofy and odd this guy is. But um, if you want me to be less humorous and more serious, that's my response. <laughs> I, I think it's... Uh I guess uh, people, when they shower, they uh, wash out all their problems. So there that's go. where he there goes go. Go. Uh, to, to solve his problems. The shampoo bottle part, I really have no interpretation on what in the living heck he's talking about. I don't have enough hair, I guess. Yes, but uh, I'll just leave it at that. Now, again, congratulations to Team Italy, Sinner, uh, Sanego, and... Matteo Arnaldi, who has made some noise this year, so I want to give him a special props here. He has a, a career high of 41 in the world, and he's made a couple of good runs. He made the U.S. Open fourth round and the Australian Open third round. Mm -hmm. So he's made a, a little noise. Uh, any thoughts on uh, Matteo Arnaldi? <sighs> Honestly, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. So, again, this is a career best for him. Mm -hmm. uh, a fourth round at the U.S. Open is pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, third round is pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. He's definitely stepping it up. So, he, he's a, he's an up-and-coming Italian that you need to watch for, for sure. Okay. Okay. Any predictions for him in this coming year? Yeah, I think that he could make a little more noise. Uh, it appears that the clay season is not his best. But on hardcore, it, is, it appears that he's, he's making noise. So, um I'm anticipating him making noise there. Okay. 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 So now going on to uh, Nadal. So again, fans were real quick to notice that as soon as Italy beat Serbia and then Italy beating Australia in the Davis Cup final, that Nadal was quick to say congratulations to Italy for their Davis Cup win. They're also saying, oh, he wasn't that quick when... Djokovic broke all his records, but he's quick to congratulate Team Italy. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> why would why would I be excited and quick to celebrate my records being broken? Why would I be that? Like, 
That is the dumbest. <laughs> that is the dumbest statement I've ever heard. Do you think Pete Sampras hopped out of seat when Federer took the Slam title record from him? He probably slouched even deeper in the couch when it happened, you know, um, and so quickly too. Yeah. So, yeah. This is this is not even news. This is funny, and I love how petty people can be. But let's be real here. I wouldn't even expect Nadal. I don't expect him to congratulate Djokovic when Djokovic destroys his records. I don't. Obviously, he's going to politically do it because he right. has to. And that's what that, that's what I'm, I'm assuming that that's what they're saying. That yeah. politically, you should be quick to acknowledge that there's a better champion. No, I disagree. I, I, I agree that they're thinking that. I disagree with that thought. I think that the only political rule here is make sure you do congratulate everyone because you're Rafael Nadal. But even still, if he didn't, I would love that more. I like when we have haters on the tour. I like when people have rivalries and stuff like that. I like when Nadal goes, he has to feel like the best to be happy. And I do not. I like those petty responses and comments. So I enjoy the transparency and the realness because let's be honest here. No one becomes the level of athlete any of these guys are without having these type of real emotions inside them. It's just a matter of who's going to broadcast them and who isn't. Yes, that's the exactly. only thing. Yes, I agree. So, yeah, I mean, that's just petty right there. But honestly, Djokovic fans, they could be very jumpy. So <laughs> here's another example. So Djokovic got tested for doping prior to Davis Cup. Mm -hmm. And all the Djokovic fans, how dare they do that to him? It was first, it was first said that he declined the doping test but then it was uh cleared that he did accept the doping test mm -hmm. uh before i'm gonna ask you i'm gonna make this statement serena every time she won the u.s open she was getting tested mm -hmm. every single time yeah she never made a big fuss about it she didn't what are your thoughts on djokovic and fans getting all jumpy because he got asked to take a dope test I mean, I want to start this off by congratulating Djokovic for having a passionate fan base who is really growing as Get of Get out of here. Um, no one cared about Djokovic about four years ago. You know, No matter what happened to him, no one was saying anything publicly. So I think that part's good for him. Um, I guess. But they're also quickly becoming my least favorite yes. <laughs> um, major Hive of fans. So, yeah, I mean, let's be honest here. Let's be real here. The doping agency's job is to make sure all athletes are clean. They're going to favor, and quote unquote, they don't favor anything, but they're going to favor the players that are having the most prominent outlier-like performances on the tour. Meaning, if you're winning an obscenely strange amount, you are going to be more likely to be tested for doping. If you're a more active player, a.k.a. you go deeper in events, you're more susceptible to testing as well. I think that Serena, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Justine Hennon, you know, whoever you want to bring up that has had extremely incredible hot streaks are just more susceptible to being tested a lot. Do I know for a fact that they all got tested a lot? No, I don't know at all. I really don't. But I do think that him getting tested after winning the World Tour Finals in straight sets against the number two and three players in the world or number two and five player in the world, um, and then going straight into Davis Cup, 
that's kind of alarming. And I think that it makes sense. So I'm not really with his hive on this one. Yes. Um, now moving on to the next gen. I really don't have a lot to report, but there was a funky situation going on. So in the Arthur Feast match, they Arthur co- Feast. yes, they're in Saudi Arabia. So they're playing some, you know, they're trying out stuff. Mm-hmm. As you know, the gen, uh, the next gen has always been the stuff where they're going to take out the doubles alley. They're going to play up to four instead of six. This time, they switched ends without the game being over. And Arthur Feast was, what in the heck is going on right now? And then uh, the chair umpire was trying to explain to him, and he even looked a tad bit confused and didn't know how to explain it. And his name is Mahalani. He's had a lot of controversial stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are your thoughts on changing ends when the game isn't over? Disgusting. <laughs> just disgusting i don't like it it seems it seems like just a wild zoo at the next gen atp events it seems like they're just throwing crap at the wall and seeing what sticks um the next gen just seems to be like the wasteland where they just throw ideas and see if they burn or if they shine and grow and it's unfortunate you know because these guys are participating in this probably just for the sake of getting extra money um, but I mean, no one even can tell you who wins every year. Like it's, it doesn't hold a lot of weight. It's not impactful. It's not highly spectated. And I mean, part of that is because let's be real here. If you're in the next gen, you probably don't have a developed fan base. Um, if you're in the next gen, we've seen countless players come out strong and there's, they're, they're their prestige taper off early, right? People who go to top 10 or top five very quickly and then disappear. So a season tennis fan is not going to get highly invested in a next-gen player who hasn't done Alcaraz-like things, Sinner-like things. And here's the catch. The people who would bring attention to the next-gen qualify for the ATP finals. So they don't play the next-gen event. That makes sense. So the next-gen event, it has a, a ceiling that's very low, you know, because... When we have a true star for next gen, a lot of times they don't even play in the event. So, you know, at best, you're going to get a Nakashima and Arthur Fees. You know, you're going to get these guys that are kind of known, kind of, you know, but haven't made enough noise to bring spectators. Right. So this event to me, it's it's going to have a short lifespan unless they make major changes and they seem to be making all the wrong changes. Yes. So I'm curious what will happen. Everything that has always been uh, experimentally uh, wanting to happen mm-hmm. has happened here. The only thing that I'm waiting for now is uh, to play uh, the serve off of the net. And if it bounces off of the net and in, it counts. <laughs> College rules. Yeah. So that's all I'm waiting for right now at the next gen. They do it in uh, 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 the Billie Jean. Uh, no, not that. Um uh, I forgot the name of it right now, but I'll probably think about it later. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to talk about team tennis, world team tennis. So now we're going to talk about uh, some stats on the big three. They're pretty impressive. I think you covered this already, but just in case, I'm going to uh, recover it. Okay. Since 1991, there have been 29 different players that have won 64 grand slams. Mm-hmm. The big three have won 66. What are your thoughts on that? It It's a nasty number. Um, 
I think that, so I want you to take this perspective here, right? Imagine you started watching tennis five years ago, right? What do you think your world is like? Or let's, let's use my perspective. I started watching professional tennis as an avid viewer who watches every tournament in 2008. That's when I started watching pro tennis. Do you know what I've seen since 2008? Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal. For sure. That's it. Yeah. That year, I want to say Djokovic won the Australian Open. That That's when he first started time. the dominance, yes. He uh, beat Sanga in the final. And ever since then, it's almost been a moonshot that someone else would be in the final and win it besides the big three or four. So that statistic for someone like me to understand what the world was like pre this era, <laughs> you know, it could be a bit of a wake up call. Um, I'm a student, so I did go back and watch the Sampras matches, the Agassi matches, the Sampras versus Agassi matches, and just, you know, do a little research to understand what happened before I got into tennis because I was so into it. But it's a pretty big wake up call for someone to explain to them the most competitive eras of tennis. And um, that might be a topic we have next week, but a conversation about when was the most competitive, difficult time to win a slam in tennis to win multiple slams, I should say. Um, what is the most difficult era? Because a lot of people say Becker played in it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, thanks for bringing Becker up. I have crazy story there. It, it, this is going to blow your mind. Okay. All right, but before that, more stats on the big three. This is actually the only one that Federer actually takes over Nadal and Djokovic, believe it or not. Mm. So most wins in one surface in a year. Mm. So you have in 2015, Novak Djokovic was 59 and 5 on hard court. In 2005, mm. Nadal was 50 and 2 on clay. Mm. In 2005, this was shocking to me, mm. Federer was 50 and 1. On hard court. Who got the one? (laughs) So this is the only stat where I've seen Federer be the leader. Because Djokovic has slowly been taking over his stats. But what are your thoughts on those stats by the big three? It just really shows you what these guys are capable of. These are All those stats are mind-blowing. But 15-1 on the surface in one year? Come on, what? That's crazy. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean... That's that's mind boggling. Uh, you you figure that's I never thought that somebody could dominate a surface as Nadal did, mm-hmm. and the fact that Federer was fifty and one is insane to me. Yeah, that I to my understanding, I just checked the statistics. Do you know what his record was overall that year? Eighty one and four. Well, there you go. And what two of them heck? must have been on clay or something. Yeah, they had to be on grass or clay. There's, yes. That is just mind-blowing tennis. Yeah, I I don't I don't even get it. How did he do that? I got to look up. I'm going to look up who he lost to. So now I have a super just crazy stat for you. As you know, Djokovic has a career titles of 98 total. Mm-hmm. Federer has 103. But of the 103, Federer has 49 on 250 and 500 events. Mm-hmm. 
Do you think? And then the question is, does that really count? Does Djokovic's titles mean more? What do you think of that? Okay, so first, I have a response for that, but I'm going to give you this little side stat. Um, His one loss in 2005 on a hard court, Merritt Safin. Oh, at the Australian Open. At the Australian Open. Yeah, he won it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. That was his one loss. Yeah, that but, was that was a clean match. Yeah, but uh, to answer your question, two fifties, five hundreds in the Federer era are actually more difficult than they may appear. Um, I do think that there were a lot of extremely loaded players playing those events as well, and he was playing a very full schedule in comparison to Djokovic, who plays a lighter schedule. So I'm not gonna. I'm not going to give too much credit or take away too much credit in this situation. I'm going to let Federer have that stat. I'm going to give him it fair and square. I agree. That's fair. Now, the the records against each other. You you would think that Djokovic is just mind-boggling, just killing everybody here. But Nadal is actually very, very close. Mm-hmm. So Djokovic against Federer and Nadal is 57 and 52. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nadal is 53 and 46 against Djokovic and Federer. Mm-hmm. And coming up in the rear, poor Federer, he's 39 and 51 <laughs> against Djokovic and Nadal. That's Nadal's fault. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what are your thoughts on that stat? Um, it's interesting. You know, they um they recently released some statistics. Uh, a tennis platform that uh, does statistics and content recently made a top five rivalries in the history of tennis and the number one rivalry. And they based from this is me assuming based off my observation, they based it. Number one priority was how many times did these two people run into each other and have to play a match? That's the basis of a rivalry for this page. The number one rivalry was Nadal and Djokovic. I can see that. The number two rivalry was Federer Djokovic. The number three rivalry was Fidal. Um, obviously, if we talk prestige and the most epic stories and matches, you'd probably put Fidal at number one. I would agree. Um, and if you want me to put my opinion in, no one asked for it, but it's it's our podcast. So put, I, yeah, I can, put your two cents. Let's uh, go. <laughs> the number two is actually Sampras Agassi. Oh, yeah. They carried tennis in the 90s. ATP for sure. Then, and this this is where I get a little gray, and I would love to hear your opinion here. I don't know if, because you do realize the most, the players who played each other more than any other set is Djokovic-Nadal. No one has played against each other more times than those two. I don't know if it's even my number three greatest rivalry. Wow. Um, I might go with something like a... McEnroe um, Connors uh, Borg McEnroe Borg or a McEnroe Connors yes where there are just matches we can't forget about that's true can you name that match that moment with Nadal and Djokovic Um, the ripped t-shirt Djokovic is the only one that really comes to mind yeah that, that, that one's huge yeah that's the only match for me personally and I don't hear it talked about. I just see people showing the video clip of Djokovic ripping his shirt after. Yes. But there's not <laughs> a lot of conversation about the matches. 
between Nadal and Djokovic. Right. People just don't discuss them. That's true. So we have movies, we have panels and discussions about these other rivalries, but just not those two. So would you put them in your top five rivalries? Nadal against Djokovic? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I I would have to put them in the top five for sure. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I could see Connors against uh, McEnroe. They really hated each other. Mm-hmm. So I really could see that even uh, eclipsing that. Mm-hmm. I definitely could see Pete and Andre for sure. That those Those were the only two, really. Mm-hmm. And they had wars. So, I mean, I could see it. I, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. For sure. That's an interesting one for me. I think that um, I think that Nadal and Djokovic, although they have the most matches against each other, they're actually my number five rivalry as far as the best rivalries of the history of tennis for yeah. men, for men. If we talk women as well, I don't yeah, think that's they're, be, they're um, not top five. Navratilova versus uh, Everett. Mm-hmm. Those two, they... Yeah, back really and forth. back and forth. Um, so now we're going to get, I'm going to leave the Alcaraz news for later. It's gonna, it's really good. But we're going to talk about the nominees for the ATP Awards for the men. Woo! I'm excited for this. So we got the comeback player of the year for the men. We have Dominic Coper, Gael Monfils, okay. Jean Leonard Struff. Okay. And of course, we have Zverev who came uh, from that knee injury, yeah. ankle, whatever it was, at the French Open against Nadal, mm. that was a pretty big comeback. Yeah. Uh, what? Who do you think wins the comeback player of the year? Zverev, and it's not even close. It's not even close. Gael Monfils is a distant second. I would. I would agree. Um, Gael Monfils had some surprisingly impressive wins this year, and multiple good matches this year that were fun to watch, but. Zverev's performance and the level he reached before this year ended was actually mind-blowing. He played his best tennis at some point this year after this injury. So, yeah, Zverev, and it's not even close. If he doesn't win this award, someone paid someone. Yes, I agree there for sure. Zverev definitely is playing, honestly, out of those guys, he's probably playing at the highest level. Yeah. So he definitely deserves it. Now, this one, to me, you could take out one player because... Even last year, this player was better than the other three players. So, obviously, you're going to pick this player. Mm. So, I don't know why this player is in this category, Mm -hmm. but we'll go with it anyway. Most improved player of the year. Okay. So, so we have Matteo Arnaldi, who I just mentioned with Italy. Yeah. You got Christopher Eubanks. He's okay. had a heck of a year. He had the great Wimbledon this year. That Wimbledon, uh, the most aces in yeah. the Wimbledon, and he didn't even play two matches or something. Yeah. Then you have Ben Shelton. Oh, yeah, that's a huge one. Yannick Sinner. <laughs> so, can you take out Yannick Sinner here? Is that fair to these guys? Look, so if we're talking, this is most improved. Most improved player of the year. He went from being the sixth best player in the world to the fourth best. I mean, that, take him out. Yeah, why is he in this list? Yes, it doesn't make sense. He Obviously, Yannick Sinner is going to surpass them all. But let's let's exclude him. Of the three, who would you pick? <laughs> That's still funny. They, they said the guy who moved two spots this year 
is most improved. Yes. Um, but uh, that aside, um, I look this one. This one's actually a little tough for me. So let me just go through them a little bit. Arnaldi for me, although he has made great leaps. Yes, from, he, has. he went from unknown to. Kind of no, known? Yes. Kind of known. Not known. Right. He went from unknown to kind of known. I'm going to take him out the equation here because I do think maybe he has a breakout player of the year type of credit he deserves. Yes. But maybe not most improved. Let's talk about Chris Eubanks for a second. Chris Eubanks, in my opinion, was fairly unknown before this year. Um, he's now a tennis TV return commentator. Yes. He's coming back to tennis TV for a second time. Yes. Um, had a massive run of Wimbledon, led in the serving statistics, yes, and was actually going blow for blow with Sisipa. Um, I think that he has made himself a player you don't want to run into on a faster court. Right, he's made that reputation for himself, and he's done it late in his career. Right, which is another statistic for me because to the untrained eye, you would assume he's like twenty two or twenty three, because where did he come from? Right, but he's Knocking on the door of 30. He's been around. That's true. Um, Chris Eubanks is definitely someone to make a case for. My follow-up is Ben Shelton in just this year went from who is that completely to Australian Open run, U.S. Open insane run, only losing to Djokovic. Right. Um, And finishing out the year on a high note. He actually had only an upward trajectory this entire year. So... It's a little tough for me to say. I'm going Shelton. Only because I watched Shelton and said, hey, this kid's got no baseline game. This kid's just a serve and a lefty. People are going to recognize his talent, study him, pick him apart, send him back where he came from. And he said, no, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to perform on the baseline. I'm going to make adjustments. And I'm going to have a mentality where I believe I have a chance no matter who's on the court with me. Did it bite him in the ass against Djokovic? Yes. But... Everywhere else he went, it made a difference. So for me, I think I'm going to give it to Ben Shelton this year. That's just a, a narrow win, in my opinion. I don't think anyone's wrong if they pick Eubanks. Yes, I like Eubanks. Yeah. Uh, if you pick the better year, obviously Ben Shelton had the U.S. Open run, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, Eubanks with those serving statistics, and he led and didn't play two matches because he got eliminated and still led. Mm-hmm. That's huge. That's huge. So I, I I have to pick Eubanks. Obviously, Sinner, most likely. What are you doing in this category? But he's most not, likely, he's going to win it, I'm assuming. He shouldn't. But I don't like him in this category. Yeah, he's not most improved because he was an elite athlete last year. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So I don't know why he's in this category. Mm-hmm. That was the most ridiculous thus far. Yeah. So now we got newcomer of the year. We got uh, Luca Van Asch. Okay. Yes. Then you got Dominic Stricker. He's a solid player from uh, Switzerland. I, I have one question for you. Was Stricker not prominent last year, or am I just confusing last year with early this year? Early this year. Okay. Because he's made a lot of noise yes. this year. Big time. Yeah. And then you got Alex Mickelson. He's the one that was 1,000 about three years ago, mm-hmm. and now he's knocking on the door of 100. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's impressive. And then you got Arthur Feast. Mm. So who's your newcomer of the year? My newcomer of the year is Ben Shelton, for the record. <laughs> I know he's not nominated, but he should be. Um, ben Shelton is a newcomer, 
Vin Shelton made more noise than all of these players combined this year. So that's that real winner. But that removed, I'm going to pick my little bro, another player who looks like he's related to me, Arthur Fee. Arthur Fee's making a lot of noise at the next gen. Yes, yes. Arthur Fee barely missed out on his title, losing to Bublik. Um, and Arthur Fee has had a relatively positive year, and it's just promising. He's a promising player. For me, I see him being a top 20 player next year. Um, I don't see him breaking in the top 10 next year, but I anticipate him having maybe four to five tournaments where he goes deep enough to get into that top 20 sector. So that's going to be my hot take there. I think that's my breakout player of the year. Yes, uh, uh, as far as performance present, it, it, you have to pick Arthur Feast. I like the uh, the Mickelson story for sure. Yeah, I agree. That, that's a great story right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be my sentimental favorite, mm-hmm. but m- m- most likely it would be Arthur Feast, maybe Dominic Stricker as well. Dominic Stricker because has he's had solid. a sick year, yes. and he's my second pick. Right. But Arthur Fee looks like me, <laughs> so I'm picking him. <laughs> and now we have the coach of the year. Ooh. So you have Ooh. Craig Boynton, who coaches Herbert Hurkacz. Hubie. Okay, okay, that's a good one. Uh, Brian Shelton, if you can put the pieces together. <laughs> he yes. coaches uh, Ben. Yeah. Then you have Darren Cahill, who coaches Yannick Sinner. Interesting. You have El Mosquito, who mm. obviously coaches uh, Carlos Alcaraz. Oh, wow. And then, of course, you got the man himself, Goran Ivanisevic, who coaches Djokovic. This wow. one's a loaded category to me. Wow. Wow. Uh, what are your thoughts? This is a loaded category for me. This is a very, 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 very difficult category. There's no actual wrong answer, but let me just just get thoughts off thinking on the spot here let's talk about which players would have done well with their coach not present and see what we can get from that Djokovic he's gonna have a good season without Goran I do agree he had a better season with Goran for sure I agree with that I agree I also do think he's one of those guys who would have found a way whether he had Goran or not maybe not the same year but a good year the next one uh, Yannick Sinner Yannick Sinner had an incredible fourth quarter, but let's not be blinded by that and forget about the first, second, and third quarters of this year. He did not have an insane year the first nine months of this year. He had a good year. Um, So for me, Yannick Sinner, I'm Xing him out, um, even though his fourth quarter was good. Carlos Alcaraz, on the other hand, Wimbledon? What? How? How did he do it? It was supposed to be the French, right? Yes. Um, what changed between the French and Wimbledon, which are not that far apart? Um, he definitely connected with his team and made a lot of very important decisions. And he did things out there on that court. A player does not do consciously by themselves. Things you don't just do on your own. He had to have a coach in his ear and a team behind him to reinforce these ideas that he applied during that Wimbledon final. It's just there's no way around it. Right. Drop shots during that last set or that last match or last game. Sorry. During that last game. Or what are we talking about? That's ice right there. Insane. That's you having a great team. Incredible. Ben Shelton. What he did against Djokovic was bad coaching. I'm taking him out. 
Um, did he have the tools to get a different result? No. So, uh, it's a catch-22 there. Um, was there anything his dad could have told him to change the outcome of that U.S. Open run? Nope. There's nothing <laughs> There's nothing his team could have said that would have changed the way that match ended. But uh, what I will say is his dad is a top-five coach of the year, for sure. But he's not the number one. He's not. I don't even want to give him more credit than Goran, personally. So he's out. And who was our last one? Herkotch's coach. Herkotch's coach. Woof. This is the sleeper pick. This I is the agree. dark this is the dark horse coach. Herkotch has had a great year and done he exceeded expectations on multiple situations. And he's the ace leader. And he's the ace leader. And people don't even know it. Right. He beat people with his serve this year. Um Herkotch might be my number two pick this year. He might be. Um, I think for me, before I say my final, I'm going to let you take the helm here. Who are you going with? I'm going, I have it between two. two. Okay. Obviously, you have to include El Mosquito. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, him beating Wimbledon, uh, Alcaraz winning Wimbledon after the, the drama at the French Open. Yeah. That was weeks apart. Yeah. Uh, El Mosquito did a lot yeah. to prep him. Uh Cahill is huge as well. People mm-hmm. may not know this, but Yannick Sinner had a plat- platform serve before. Mm-hmm. He changed it to a pinpoint. Mm-hmm. Since then, he's serving 10 miles an hour faster. Oh. So that's coaching all day. That's a big stat. Right there. Yeah. So he improved his serve, and his forehand is getting a little uh, more MPH as well. Absolutely. It so is. I can't, I honestly can't put. Even Goron right now mm. above uh, Cahill. I can't. Mm. And those other two, yes, they're great stories, but I just can't. To yeah. me, it's between El Mosquito and Cahill. Cahill really changed uh, center. Yeah. Um, with, that, with all that being said, after listening to your case, I'm changing my answer. I'm going to go Yannick Sinner. Only because, in my opinion, Yannick Sinner was the one... That was the most difficult. He he came in, in my opinion, with less tools, and his coach turned him into a guy with more tools. Yes. Um, I do think that Yannick Sinner was the most linear of the people in this category as far as the way he plays tennis, and they're making him nonlinear. That's impressive. Very. And that is risky because you can ruin a player's year doing that, and they actually enhanced it. So. Yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna lean towards Cahill. I'm gonna go Yannick Center. That's a good call for me. Yes, and then of course you have uh, uh, El Mosquito, who again Alcaraz won Wimbledon. Yeah, so that's crazy. T- to that's me, crazy. those two are have to be the leading favorites. Yeah, for sure. Him winning Wimbledon is by far. If anyone picks um, Carlos Alcaraz for this, well, his coach uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero. Yes. Uh, if anyone picks him for this, cool. I agree. I'm not mad. I'm not I'm mad not at mad. that, but. I just think it's braver. It's more brave oh, sure. as a coach to do what they did what with Yannick Sinner. Yes. That's brave because yes. that's how you get fired. Getting, oh, absolutely. Getting that wrong is how you lose your job. Absolutely. And he turned it into a W. What he what they did with Alcaraz, it was it made sense on paper before they took the risk. Right. Um it was just a matter of will it execute or not. It was not an actual high risk plan they made. Yes. Yannick Sinner, on the other hand, changing someone's serve footwork. What? That's terrifying. And increasing the pace. Yeah. And saying swing bigger 
on a guy who's known for being rock solid consistent. Right. These are scary things they're doing to his game, and they're working. So yes. I'm all about it. I'm going Cahill, no doubt in my mind. I, I couldn't be mad at that. So now we're going to get to the Alcaraz news. This is hilarious. Yeah. I would have put this probably before, but this is just too funny to me. Mm-hmm. So Djokovic made a statement that he's next year, uh, the Olympic year, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be in Paris. Mm-hmm. He's coming for the four Grand Slams and the Olympic gold medal for mm-hmm. reals this time. <laughs> it's not going to be Beijing. For real this, this is time. for reals this time. For realsies. Yes. Alcaraz said, nah, bro. Uh, I'm here to stop you, and we are here to stop you. Wow. Don't try to call for help, Alcaraz. What are your thoughts on Alcaraz saying, nah, Djokovic, you ain't winning the Golden Slam? You know why this is funny to me? Because he ran up to Djokovic and said, hey, you, we're going to stop you. And then he turned behind him to see who was with him, and it was... (laughs) <laughs> maybe center it was, maybe. It, was, it was half of Yannick center behind him and the rest of the tour was like yo bro I don't know man <laughs> but you know who was uh, hiding in the shadows behind him saying maybe I can help Nick Kyrgios hey okay All um, right. That was that's who's behind him saying maybe um, I. this is a funny thing you brought up I love that this is a topic because it's so funny Carlos Alcaraz saying this is just so funny, man. He's so bent on stopping Djokovic and getting stomped on every time he talks too much. When he gets quiet is when the good things happen. I hope he's able to enter a solitudinal space, concentrate, apply a plan, and win like he did at Wimbledon. Because you'll notice he wasn't this vocal at Wimbledon. No, he was quiet. He came in with his briefcase and his suit and handled business. All that big talk at the French Open. Oh, oh, this is my surface. All the pressures that were on him. Expectations. All the interviews. And he was trembling. And he cramped. And he had anxiety or whatever he wants to call it. Um, Alcaraz does best in a solitudinal space. Let's keep an eye on him at Australian Open. Yes. Let's keep an eye on him at the U.S. Open. Yes. Let's not expect very much at the French. And let's not expect him to defend his Wimbledon title. Because those are going to be the moments where he's going to have the most press and media and attention and crowd activity. And thus, I think he will give us less of a performance. I agree. That's an opinion. I agree with you that he didn't put as much pressure on himself. Mm-hmm. And that is why he brought it at Wimbledon. Yeah. But you brought up a good point. Uh, Alcaraz can overtake Djokovic as the number one player in the world right away in Australia. He can do it. Uh, because uh, he didn't have a lot of points to defend. Mm-hmm. Uh, Djokovic won the title. Mm-hmm. So he could re- uh, take him back real quick. Mm-hmm. So if he puts his mind and head together, he could do it. He has no... This is the only slam of the year where no one expects him to win. Nobody does. Australian Open is what we should expect from Alcaraz. If you want me to be honest with you, he has a pattern of winning when we don't expect him to win. And so I think the Australian Open is going to fit his mold and story the best. If he gets the right draw, and with the number two seeding, it's hard not to. Right. Um, I just want him to not draw. Uh, let's assume Nadal or uh, Kyrgios show up. I'd rather They go. will. I want them on the other side. Oh, for sure. If they're on the other side with Djokovic, Alcaraz wins the Australian Open. I you agree. Heard, you heard yeah. it here first. There you go. But, ATV podcast. <laughs> but this is the last topic here. Yeah. But. Boris Becker claims otherwise. Mm-hmm. So Alcaraz says, we're here to stop you. 
But Boris Becker said, and I quote, Alcaraz has been figured out. Mm. Players know how to beat him. (sighs) After Wimbledon, uh, players have figured out how to beat Alcaraz. So can Alcaraz really stop Djokovic or will the field stop Alcaraz first? Big talk. Very big talk from a very respected source. Very respected. Um, If this were from anyone else, I'd probably scoff at this and laugh. Coming from Boris Becker, my next question is going to be this. You saw him. There's a target on his back. It's the ego effect, right? Yes. It's that we figured you out. We know how to beat you. Question number two is, do you have the skill set to exploit me? Can you actually execute the plan at a high level in a best out of five? Because we all can talk about what the plan is to beat someone. And let's go to the Mike Tyson famous quote. Exactly. Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Um, How many players on the tour, let's be blunt and honest here. How many players are on the professional tour right now that can go in with a plan against Alcaraz to beat him and execute it when he's playing his best tennis? Just the two. Maybe Medvedev. Maybe. Maybe Medvedev, who is so set in his style of play that it's either going to work for him or not. Yes. Um, Medvedev is definitely, in my opinion, not a guy who completely alters his play style to beat you. He's a guy who beats you with his play style. Um, he doesn't decide to take the ball early today. He doesn't decide to only crash the net. You know, he's still going to return from deep. He's still going to grind you out. He's still going to get all the balls back in play. He's not a fetter, a Djokovic and a doll who will dynamically completely switch everything he's doing on the court in the moment. He's not that guy. Um, so it's a short list for me. It's a very short list of people who can, in a best of five, take out Alcaraz playing his best tennis. I just don't believe it. And for someone like Alcaraz, who had a very long season, he's going to come fully recharged at the Australian Open. What are you going to do when he's moving at his fastest and hitting at his hardest? Yes, Alcaraz has too many weapons to be shut down that way. Yeah. Uh, He's too fast. Um, his his surface kick serve sets him up for a ton of points. Mm-hmm. His forehand, it's it's explosive. People think that it, it's not, but um, even Medvedev at Indian Well said, "Yeah, this is the biggest forehand I've I've played." Yeah. So you can't stop him, but there are a couple of wild cards coming back, mm-hmm. which, as you stated, is Nadal and Kyrgios. So I'll yeah. include Kyrgios because he has a massive serve. Yeah. So I'll include him. So, and lastly. Uh, I didn't know Nick was such an Alcaraz fan. Mm. He came to Alcaraz's defense and he said, oh, well, Carlos will figure you out, Boris Becker. You're next. Oh, checkmate. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> that's, um, that's um, look, as much as that sounds like something I should laugh at, we saw the French Open and we saw what happened at Wimbledon. We really did. And so let's take out Alcaraz's name and put in Alcaraz's team in that sentence. And it makes a lot of sense. It's okay. When his entire team gets together to figure out what he needs to do, Boris Becker, there's several very smart brains in that corner. 
Are you really ready to take all of them out together? Because you could take out Alcaraz from yeah, from the finals that you studied. Are you ready to take out the one that was prepped by Ferrero and his entire team? I, I don't know about that. I just don't, I don't think it's that simple. So we'll see. Time will tell. Yes, and I don't think that Holger Runa, who's being coached by Boris Becker, yeah. has the weaponry. He maybe. He doesn't have the fire, the fire power. fire enough yeah. to, to take on Alcaraz. He is very well-rounded and balanced. And I will even say this. I'll go this far and say he is the most consistently well-rounded and balanced of maybe the quote-unquote new big three from a physical standpoint. But he's the least balanced from a mental standpoint of the new big three. With that being said, make sure you show up with your mind in the right place. You're going to have to beat several top 10 players to win this event before you even maybe get to Alcaraz, possibility. And with all that being said, are you going to have enough firepower to open up the court the way you need to to take him out? Right. I don't know. And uh, matchup styles make matchups. And it's surprising to me that Holger Runa competes really well against Djokovic. Mm Mm-hmm but not against Alcaraz. Right. It could be more of a big brother type thing, Mm -hmm. but I am shocked that Hulgaruna does not compete as well against Alcaraz. I think that it's a first strike uh, tennis dynamic, which is Alcaraz is attacking immediately, and Djokovic is a little bit more like Holger, where he isn't necessarily vicious and trying to hit you in the face right away. Right. He's more constructive, more methodical, more of a grinder, more big, big picture. And sometimes that might get in the way of his victory being a lot easier than it should. Uh, he makes it harder than it should be sometimes. Yes, for sure. Um, so that's my thoughts there. So I thought that the quote was funny. I thought Kyrgios coming to Alcaraz's uh, aid was mm-hmm. funny. So I definitely decided to end it with that. I like that. I like that. Uh, would you like to add anything or are you good? Uh, I think I'm good. Uh, my last final thought just off of your statement is I hope that Curios doesn't have too much respect for Alcaraz because they may play each other. Yes. And when someone respects their opponent too much, it can cause the loss before the match starts. Yes, exactly. So with that being said, I hope you guys were entertained. Adios, ATP.